we are going to dive into the second to last installment of our series called Glad You Asked. The last four or five weeks, we've been fielding questions from our people. You've been writing them in. You've been texting them in. You'll actually see in the bottom corner... Uh, as the slides go through, you'll see a phone number. You can text in your questions to that phone number at any time if something pops up for you today. And, and we've answered a lot of questions. We've answered questions of culture. We've answered questions of conduct. We've answered questions of relationships. But today I think we're going to answer the most important questions of all. Today we're going to answer what I'm simply titling the big questions. These are the questions that I believe define who we are as Christians, because these are the questions that determine what do we think about God. Who do we think that God is, and who do we think that God is not? And as we get to our final questions today, it's going to cut to the very core of what I believe we are called to do and be as Christians. I'm going to go ahead and warn you in advance. Today isn't going to be as fun as Pork, weed, and wine day. Last week. We had some fun last week looking at some questions of culture. If you want to go check out the podcast, you can do that. Uh, But today's going to be a little bit heavier because we're going to wrestle with some difficult questions. Don't get me wrong. My goal for you is that you would leave here today encouraged. My goal for you is that you would leave here today with a greater understanding of who God created you to be and the role that you have to play in the story of Jesus that's going on all around us. I think you're going to leave here today pumped up. But before we get to that end, we're going to have to navigate some bumpy roads. It's going to be some rough waters because we're going to wrestle with some questions that many times Christians don't like to wrestle with. See, these are the questions that our unsaved friends like to ask us, and we try to brush them off because we don't really know the answer. We don't really know how to answer it in a way that makes God look good, that makes Christianity something that's desirable. So today, we're going to pull up our big boy draws and our big girl, whatever you want to call them. We're going to get ready for a hard day, for a heavy day. We're going to go to God's Word, and we're going to see what God's Word has to say about some big questions. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the chance to bring this word. Lord, I ask you just to speak through me, Lord, like you've never spoken through me before. God, I pray that that truth would come from this pulpit today. God, I pray that grace would shine in everything that is said. Lord, I pray that people would be encouraged, uh, God, by who you are. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, that we would make you famous, that we would make you glorious in everything that we do today. But God, I pray that, that for if... Those who are here today who may be wrestling with some of these questions, Lord, I pray that you would speak directly where they're at. God, that you would give them encouragement, you would give them hope. Lord, for those who who have friends or family members who are pounding them with these questions, who have never known how to answer them, God, I pray that today you would give them a tool to respond, Father God, that, that we would always be able to give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you for what you're going to do today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're just going to dive right in with our first question on this theme. And here's what the question says. It says, why does God allow suffering to exist? It's going to be a fun one today. Why does God allow suffering to exist in his allowance, and therefore causation, is he still saddened by suffering? Uh, I'm going to get into the question in just a second, but before I do, I just want to say this. Um, I know that there is some suffering going on in this room right now. Uh, In a room this size, in a a group this size, we have people who have been victims of spousal abuse. We have people in this room who have been raped. 
We have people in this room who have been molested. We have people in this room who have lost close family members to sickness, disease, cancer, accidents. Uh, We have people in this room uh, who have suffered. And you may be one of them. Uh, And if you've ever been in a position of suffering, you've probably wrestled with this question. Why? God, why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? If you've never been in a place where you've had that suffering, you're probably very young, uh, and get ready, because it's going to happen. This world has suffering in it. All of us are going to suffer at some point in time, and I know that I told you I was going to encourage you today. This is part of that bumpy road before we get there. It's a great question. Uh, There's technically two questions here and an assumption which I think is actually a false assumption. So I'm going to reword this and and break it into three questions and turn the assumption into a question. The first question would be this. When God allows something, is he causing it? Uh, The the question was phrased uh, something along the lines of, by allowing it and therefore causation, uh, is God still saddened by suffering? Uh, So is God, when God allows something to happen, is he ultimately the cause of it? Is because he's not stopping it, does that mean that God's putting his stamp of approval on it? This is a big question for unbelievers. This is a big hurdle for many people who don't know Jesus. They will ask the question, maybe you've heard of it, how can a God who is completely good and completely powerful allow bad things to happen? How can evil exist if God is simultaneously all-powerful and all-good? If he's allowing bad things to happen, ultimately, he must be causing them, right? Wrong. Uh, It's not actually the case. You see, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter, which has been handed down to us. It's one of the books of the Bible. And in his letter, James was writing to, to his church. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was full of some very, uh, I guess you would call them religious weirdos. Uh, Religious people who like to get together and just talk about the deep things of God. Uh, Very theological, but they didn't do anything with them. And so James was confronting or confronted by questions very similar to this. And so in chapter 1 of his letter, uh, starting in verse 13, he discusses, Is God the cause of temptation? If God's allowing us to be tempted, certainly he must be the cause of it, right? And he addresses this question. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to death. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Excuse me, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James asks the question, does God allow temptation? Well, certainly God allows it. Uh, even Jesus was tempted. Uh, so temptation exists for all of us. All of us wrestle with temptation, but God, in allowing temptation, is certainly not the cause of it. God does not bring temptation. God never causes us to be tempted, and I believe the same principle applies with suffering. Uh, just because suffering exists does not mean that God is the cause of it. I believe that God is the source of all that is good. I believe John 10.10 10 sums it up so perfectly that there is a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy, but that Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly. 
God's the source of all that is good. He is never the source of suffering. So God does not tempt us, and he does not cause us to suffer. The, the second miniature question in here, oh, excuse me. So the answer to that first question is, no, God allowing something is not God causing, causing it. So now that we have that false premise out of the way, let's hit the, the two questions specifically in this question. First, is God saddened by suffering? Does suffering bother God? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all that God is. Jesus even went so far to say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so when we look to Jesus, when we look at his life and discover how he lived and what he did, we can see how God feels about things. And in John chapter 11, there's this incredible story of a man passing away named Lazarus. You see, Lazarus was one of Jesus' best friends. And Lazarus falls sick, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, if you can just get here, we know that you can heal Lazarus. We know that he doesn't have to die. And so Jesus receives this message, and he chills. He drags his feet intentionally. And he finally hits the road with his disciples, and they arrive in the town to see Lazarus. And Mary and Martha have run out, first Martha and then Mary, to tell Jesus that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Why didn't you come sooner? Why did you allow this to happen? And you probably know the end of the story. If you've been around church for very long, this is kind of a popular one. You know that Jesus comes up to the tomb and he speaks, and we always see it in this like deep, booming voice. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes strolling out of the tomb in his grave clothes, looking like a mummy, and they take off his grave clothes, and he's alive. See, Jesus knew the end of the story, just like we do. And Jesus was not distressed for Lazarus. He was excited for Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was going to have the greatest icebreaker at every party he ever went to after this. What's up? I used to be dead. How you doing? He was blessing Lazarus like none of us have ever been blessed before. Or else people are going to think he was really weird. I don't know. But Jesus knew Lazarus was going to be all right. He knew Lazarus was fine. So it's really interesting to see what happens in Jesus' conversation with Lazarus' sisters. We'll pick it up in the second conversation with his sister Mary in John chapter 11, verse 32. Here it says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, listen to this. This is Jesus. This is your Lord. This is your Savior. He was deeply moved and troubled. Excuse me, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we get to verse 35, which is one of the most famous verses in Scripture because it's the one so many of us memorize. Jesus wept. Two little words. But it should not simply be famous for its simplicity and its ease of memorization. There is so much power packed into those two little words. Jesus wept. Not Jesus shed a tear. Not Jesus had the sniffles. Not Jesus cried a little bit. Not Jesus had a man cry. Jesus wept. He wept. Why would Jesus weep? He knew Lazarus was fine. 
He knew Lazarus was going to be okay. Jesus did not weep. For Lazarus says when he saw Mary weeping and saw the other Jews there mourning, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept because he cared about Mary and Martha and those who were hurting. You see, Jesus responds to our pain. Jesus cares how we feel. He cares about our sorrows. God cares about our suffering. Psalm chapter 34, verse 18 puts it this way. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you are suffering today, if you are brokenhearted today, if you are with lack or without or in sickness, if there is trouble in your life today, I want you to know that God is close to you. Not because he's causing the trouble, but he's coming to rescue those who are broken and crushed in spirit. Is God saddened by our suffering? Absolutely. He loves us with an unconditional, impossible to comprehend love. Without doubt, without question, he is saddened by our suffering. So that brings us to the last part of this first question and the trickiest to answer. Why does God allow suffering to exist? Why would a good God allow us to suffer? Now we know that God does not cause suffering, and we know that his heart is broken by our suffering. So why not just prevent it? Why is it even allowed? Well, the simple answer is this. Suffering exists because people exist, and people cause suffering. You see, God could prevent all suffering, but there's only two ways he could do it. One is he could not create the human race to begin with, or two, he could recreate the human race and deny us free will and choice. But because people exist and because people are fallen, suffering exists. Or to be more specific, because one person in particular existed, the original person whose name was Adam. Adam was created and God gave him dominion. He gave him authority. He delegated control to Adam over the earth. He said, I'm putting you in charge. And he gave him one rule. One thing not to screw up, and Adam screwed it up, just like we would have. It's easy to look down on Adam, but we'd have done the same thing. Say, don't eat that cookie. Cookie's going to be gone, right? Adam ate the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. And because of it, he ushered in sin and death and suffering. And that all of us have inherited his fallen, sinful nature because of it. So obviously, much suffering is caused directly by people. We know this type of suffering, lying, gossip, spousal abuse, child abuse, rape, murder, molestation, divorce, abandonment, twerking. All kinds of terrible things happen because of people. I got to lighten this one up a little bit, all right? All kinds of awful, horrible suffering happens because of people. Right? Directly. We know it. All of us have been the cause of someone's suffering. All of us picked on a kid on the playground sometime. All of us have been the cause of someone's suffering. But not only is suffering that is directly caused by people, not only are people the source of that suffering, people, humanity, the fall, is the source of what I would call indirect suffering as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 21 says this. It says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, talking about the future day when Jesus returns, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, when God looked down on day six of creation, 
after creating man, and he says it is very good. The world existed in perfect harmony. Everything existed exactly the way it was supposed to be. The world, the creation was pure. It was whole. There was no death, no sickness, no disease, no sin. But when Adam fell, it ushered all of those things in and suffering along with them. And actually what happened is the creation itself became fallen. The earth itself fell along with Adam. Everything got put out of whack, out of order. It's why now we have genetic mutations that didn't exist back then. It's why things like sickle cell anemia are taking lives and causing so much suffering because the creation itself has fallen. That means that hurricanes are a result of the fall. Earthquakes are a result of the fall. Cancer is a result of the fall. Suffering is a result of the fall. If there was no sin, there would be no suffering. It's all about the fall. It's all about sin. And the truth is we all own that sin because we are all equally sinners. Suffering is not caused by God. It's caused by us. We're the ones who bring suffering. And the only way God could prevent suffering was by preventing us. And God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite goodness decided to allow us to exist anyway. Because he knew that there would be something good, something glorious that come out of his creation that we get to be a part of. So the answer to the third part of our first question is God allows suffering because God allows people. And people cause suffering. I actually brought a picture. If you'll go ahead and put this up for us, Allie. Uh, this I saw on Facebook this week. I thought it was appropriate. The guy on the bench talking to Jesus says, so why do you allow things like famine, war, suffering, disease, crime, homelessness, despair, etc., to exist in our world? And Jesus says, interesting that you should bring that up. I was about to ask you the same question. Why do we allow these things to exist in our world? Why don't we get them under control? God's given us dominion. God's put us in charge. He says, I want you to be the solution. I want you to be the fix. Moving on to question number two for today. How do you convince people when bad things happen that it's okay because God is in control? I know the heart of the person who asked this and people who ask questions like this is so pure. I know that the desire here is to be an encouragement, to to lift people up who are going through a hard time, to tell them that God is going to take care of it. But the implications here are so, so scary to me. It's like, hey, I know your dad just had a heart attack, but cheer up, kid. God's going to make sure it's okay. Sometimes that answer doesn't just help in the midst of the suffering. Sometimes it actually comes across the other way. It's like, oh, well, God's in control, so that means that God gave my dad a heart attack? So is God going to give me a heart attack too? It's not so comforting. It's not so encouraging as we mean it to be. Also, I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's really the way that we should phrase it. I would say it this way, and this is going to sound like blasphemy. Stick with me. Don't walk out on me. God's not really in control. Not completely. Not totally. Allow me to expand. Don't get me wrong. God is absolutely in charge. God is on the throne. He is the highest authority. There is no one greater, no one stronger. There is none that can even stand in his presence. He is the greatest there ever was, the greatest there ever will be. He is absolutely 100% without question in charge. But while he's fully in charge, he is not today presently fully in control. 
As we've, already, as we've already seen, many things happen in our world that God is not the cause of. Temptation, sin, sickness, disease, suffering. God's not just controlling things like pieces on a chessboard, moving them exactly where he wants them to go. See, instead of that, God has delegated control. He's given us control. He's put us in charge of our lives and the things that are going on in our world, and he's entrusted them to us. He's even given us authority over demons and serpents. He's given us authority to handle the junk that comes into our life. And so ultimately, is God in control? Absolutely. Is he in control of the ending? Yes. Is God in control of the way the story is going to completely unfold without question, without a doubt? But is he in control of the suffering, of the, the exact things that are going on in our daily lives? I don't believe that he is. Here's what I tell people when they're going through something difficult. In fact, Wednesday night after our youth service, a youth leader and I sat in that room right there and we counseled with a young girl who's in a very abusive situation right now. A very hard situation, a situation that's causing her to consider self-destructive things. I don't want to get any more detail in case some of you know who we were talking to. It was a bad situation. It's a rough situation. And as we loved on this girl, as we encouraged this girl, we pointed her the same place that I always point people in this situ- in, when they're going through stuff like this. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says that we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I know that NIV is updated now, and it's not exactly the way it's worded, but that's the way I memorized it, so that's the way I'm going to say it. But that God works all things together for our good. Not that God causes all things for our good, but in the middle of our things, God is working. So what I don't, I don't tell people, well, don't worry, God's in control. What I do tell them is that if you are called according to his purpose, if you're a Christian, God is absolutely at work. He is at work on your behalf. He is at work in your defense. He is at work to bring something good out of your suffering. Doesn't mean that he's causing it. Doesn't mean it's his desire for you. I believe his heart breaks for that little girl. I believe that his heart breaks for the victims of abuse. I don't believe that is anything that God ever desires any of us to go through. But even in the midst of it, I do believe that God is at work that God is going to work that thing together for her good. And I can't tell her how, I can't tell her when, I can't tell her exactly what that will look like, but I can tell her that God is at work. And so I would not encourage you to tell people, don't worry about it, God is in control. But I would tell them, trust me, God is at work, even in your suffering, even in your situation. Next question, and we're actually going to be two questions together, and, and they're going to be the basis for the end of our message today because they're pretty much the same question. It says this, if an isolated village in Africa or anywhere else in the world has never heard of God, how will they answer in front of God? Will they go to heaven or hell? Similar question was submitted by a student on a Wednesday night. The student worded it this way, what about the people who do not have access to the word of God and have never heard the name of Jesus? It's not their fault they don't believe because they never had a chance. Are they still punished and sent to hell? So if you were here that Wednesday night, you've got a little sneak peek at how we answered this question. But I think it's such an important one that we had to field it both on Wednesday and on Sunday. I think it's ultimately probably the most important question for Christians to wrestle with. If you're not a Christian, the most important question is, do you believe in Jesus? 
But once you've crossed that line of faith and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I believe this is the most important question for us to answer. Oftentimes it's phrased like this. What about the innocent guy in Africa or India or China or wherever who has never heard about Jesus? Would God send him to hell? And when the question is phrased that way, I have a very clear answer. No. Of course not. The innocent person? God would never send an innocent person to hell. God is just. God is good. He would never allow an innocent person to go to hell. The problem is, the innocent person doesn't exist. That's the problem we face. You see, Scripture is clear, Old Testament, New Testament, that there is no one innocent. Isaiah 64, 6 says our righteousness is as filthy rags. Romans 3, 10 says there's no one righteous, not even one. (coughs) Excuse me. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Let me stop right there. Notice that it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness of people, not against godless people and wicked people. God's wrath burns against sin. God's wrath does not burn against people. Now, because of our sin, when we are in sin, yes, God's wrath is burning against us, but it's not against our person. It is against our sin. Important thing to understand. It says that uh, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. There is no innocent man in Africa. There is no innocent teenager in the Amazon jungle. There is no innocent woman in India. All of us are sinners. And all of us have come short of the glory of God. And all of us are in desperate need of Savior. There is no one who is innocent. Romans 10.13 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The key to getting out of a place of judgment, out of a place of sin, is calling on the name of Jesus. So, yes, as much as I don't like this answer, as much as I wish this was not the case, if that villager in Africa or wherever it may be never hears the name of Jesus, never has access to the word of God, and dies without calling on the name of Jesus, yes, they will go to hell. It's the truth. It's the reality of the world. It's a problem. And some of you are bothered by this. Some of you, this really eats you up. Some of you are not comfortable with that answer. And I say, good. We should not be comfortable with this. We should not be okay with this. I am with you. I am one of you. This tears me up inside. This eats at me. This drives me. This bothers me. To no, to no end that someone could die without ever hearing the name of Jesus and go to hell. It's a problem. It's a massive, ugly, nasty problem. Romans chapter 10 continues on after verse 13 going into 14. It says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they have not heard? Romans 10 shows us the problem. People don't know about Jesus. And if they don't know about Jesus, how can they call on his name? 
How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? It's a problem. I know that it bothers many of us, I hope, and I pray that it bothers all of us. It should bother you if you're a Christian, that someone could die and go to hell without hearing the name of Jesus. Thankfully, Romans 10 does not just leave us with the problem. It also provides us with a solution. God is not cruel. God is not unjust. God is not surprised by this problem. God had a plan from the moment Adam and Eve fell to restore humanity, to send his son to die for our sins. And now that Jesus has died for our sins, God has a plan for people to hear about him. Romans 10, continuing on in verse 14, tells us the plan. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are called to preach. We are called to take the name of Jesus. We are called to get on our feet and go. Yes, people dying and going to hell without hearing the name of Jesus should bother you. But God has a solution. And the solution is you. You are the solution to the greatest problem in the world. You are God's chosen solution, not the person sitting next to you, not the person from the mega church, not the person from the rich family, not the person who has greater giftings, not the person who's memorized more scripture, not the younger person who has more energy and more life to live, not the older person who has more wisdom and more knowledge. You are the solution to the problem. And so am I. We are the solution. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm the solution. Look at the person on the other side and say, you the solution. Church, hear me on this. God does not have a plan B. The church of Jesus Christ, empowering, equipping, and sending out the saints of Jesus Christ is the only plan that God has to reach the lost, the dying, the hurting, the person who's never heard about Jesus. We are the solution. God is not unjust. He is not cruel. He's not surprised. He's got a plan, and we are the plan. If people dying and going to hell doesn't sit well with you, I say, good, because it doesn't sit well with me, and it didn't sit well with God. It bothered him so much that he sent his son to die to fix it. And then he chose us to go out. And to tell people, he saved you by his mind-boggling, beautiful, amazing grace so that you could be part of the solution. The lostness of the lost disturbs you this morning. Don't let it just give you some emotion for a moment. Don't let it move you for a second and then move on. Do something about it. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Live every day, every breath to carry the name of Jesus to those who don't know him. You are the solution. Begin to ask God how you can play a part in evangelizing the world. What is the part that God has for you to play? 
Here's what I believe. I think there's three aspects to this process. There's people who pray for missions. There's people who give to missions. And there's people who go on missions. And somebody will tell you all of us are supposed to pray. And most of us are supposed to give. And some of us are supposed to go. I disagree. I think all of us are supposed to pray. And all of us are supposed to give. And all of us are supposed to go. Doesn't mean all of us go for full time. Doesn't mean all of us go today or in this season of life. But I believe all of us own the responsibility of that guy in Africa who dies without hearing the name of Jesus. And if the church of Jesus would take up the calling of Jesus, it wouldn't have to happen. If we would be who God has called us to be, that guy would have a chance to know the truth. In the meantime, before it's your time to go, because I do believe there's time for you to go, begin to pray. God, what can I do? Who should I support? Where should I send money to? What can I do right now where I'm at? Begin to, to educate yourself about missionaries. If you have questions, I would love to hook you up with information on who's doing missions, where are they at, and what can we do to help them, to resource them. But I believe that we all have a responsibility. In the meantime, take Jesus to your world. Take him to your family. Take him to your coworkers. Take him to the people in your neighborhood. Take him to the people in your world who don't know Jesus. All of them need to hear about him. Before Jesus left the earth, he gave his disciples an incredible statement, which we now know as the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says this. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the very end of the age. You see, we call this the great commission. It is not the great suggestion. It is not the great idea. It is not the great option. It's the great commission. And if you are lucky enough, blessed enough that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, that commission's for you and it's for me. This is God's expectation for his people. He says, I love you. I care about you. I choose you. I draft you. I adopt you. And now you're the solution for those who have not yet heard my name. Let's be the church. Let's take up the calling of Jesus Christ and let's be the solution for the suffering, for the hurting, especially for the lost and the dying in this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.